To say that 2016 has been a year of change would be a great understatement. From the historic yet completely unpredictable U.S. presidential election to Britain's surprising decision to exit the European Union, it's been a very tumultuous time. So what is happening? Is it the backlash against globalization and trade that we keep hearing about? But what changes are we really experiencing? And what are the factors driving those changes? Welcome to Toyota Talks Global. I'm Lila Aridia Foss, International Policy Director. And to answer these questions and more, I'm pleased to introduce our special guest, David Rothkopf, the CEO and editor of FP Group, which publishes Foreign Policy Magazine and FP Events. David, welcome to Toyota Talks Global, and thank you for participating in our very first episode. I can't think of anyone I'd rather explore this topic with. We keep hearing about this anti-globalization backlash, and perhaps we're reaching the end of globalization as we know it. But what exactly is globalization? How would you define it for our audience? Well, you know, I I love when people talk about the end of globalization, right? Because globalization is all of world history. Uh, Globalization is sort of the, 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 the foremost law of sort of geopolitical physics, It continues. Civilizations may rise and fall. Opinions may rise and fall. uh, But the integrative impulse among people always continues. It started when a guy climbed out of a tree and went looking for somebody else to talk to. (laughs) And, you know, know, if he didn't find in his little tribe, he walked down the road a bit and he found another village. And people have reached out from village to village to create uh, principalities, countries, empires. And wherever borders have gone up, people have crossed them. And wherever possible, they've produced further integration. And we're now living at a, at a profoundly different moment in the history of the world. Within the next 10 years or so, For the first time in the history of mankind, every single human being on the planet will be connected in a man-made system, that is to say the Internet, by virtue of smartphones, by virtue of the fact that even people in the poorest communities will have them, everybody will be connected to everybody else. So to suggest that somehow we're at a moment of the reversal of globalization is to misunderstand fundamentally what history is about and to miss what is a a great watershed, the most important historical watershed in our lives, where we're actually all entering into kind of one cultural ecosystem. Well, and and about that ecosystem, it seems, you know, we are experiencing this this hyper-integration through technology, through um, digital communication, all these other factors, as you mentioned. But at the same time, it seems like governments within countries are are trying to build walls. They're trying to sort of stop these forces. And as uh, UN Secretary General Kofi Annan said, trying to fight the laws of globalization is like trying to fight the laws of gravity. In the case of globalization... Uh, if, you, if you take a historical perspective, the past half century has seen more liberalization of trade, 
more integration in terms of transportation infrastructure, more integration in terms of information infrastructure, more integration in terms of cultural exchange, more integration in terms of market interconnection than ever before in human history. So to suggest that somehow all that is being reversed is, is in my view, silly. Um, will we have to contend with people who fear integration, people who fear dislocation, people who seek to change the course of integration somewhat or uh, uh, seek to protect their little portion of the world? Sure. We'll, we'll, we'll always have to deal with that. And, no, and, and I think a lot of people, at least during this election season in the United States, are including trade in globalization when they speak about globalization. In light of that, clearly there have been winners and losers. But who really are the winners and losers in trade? Well, look, in a purely economic sense, uh, the economy benefits more broadly and therefore everybody benefits more broadly because trade produces growth. Uh, if your economy contains factors that exacerbate inequality, then some people may benefit more than others. And all, throughout history, there's been dislocation. At the end of the 19th century, the majority of people in the United States and in most other countries worked in agriculture. Um, at the end of the 20th century, a tiny fraction worked in agriculture. That meant a lot of people had to leave agriculture. It didn't mean there was less food. It didn't mean there was less choice. And it didn't mean that the people who once worked on farms didn't end up in equally good or better jobs. Uh, it was progress. Uh, but I, I, I think that the problem is that too many people who are pro-trade have felt that making these arguments is sufficient, and it's not. There are dislocations. You have to find a way to deal with those dislocations. You have to take the fears of people who fear dislocation very seriously. You have to help those who have lost jobs or are likely to lose their jobs, retrain themselves and find new opportunities. And all of this is exacerbated by the fact that we are entering a period of what I might call hyper-productivity, where AI and robots and new technologies are cutting down some traditional human jobs from the industrial era, manufacturing jobs, replacing them with robots and others. And, and we're going to have to figure out where those people are going to work. That's a challenge, but it's the challenge human beings have risen to when every chapter has been turned throughout the course of the history of the world economy. And, I, and it seems during this, again, this election season in the United States and also looking at elections in Europe, that many people feel that the politicians are not rising to the challenge. Where do you think that leaves mainstream politics today? Uh, you know, politicians tend to oversell. They go, well, I have the opposition, so I can't indicate that there's a flaw in my progress of my project. I've got to um, uh, uh, say that this will solve all your problems and make you thinner and happier and, and, and have your hair grow back. You know, I mean, it's and, 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 you know, people who are sophisticated consumers of products they buy on television need to be somewhat more sophisticated consumers of products they buy from politicians. Um, having said that, 
there is a, a social obligation that we all have that if we want to reap the benefits of progress, integration, tapping foreign markets, taking advantage of new technologies, that we all then must realize we have a shared responsibility to help those who are displaced find a new place, to help those that are knocked down get back up. You know, I, I was senior trade official in the first Clinton administration. Uh, and, uh, you know, the uh, we, we sold trade hard. We sold NAFTA hard. We sold uh, the Uruguay round hard. We sold normalization of trade relationships with China hard. Um, and I think we oversold them. And I think when we offered, you know, makeup, you know, we'd say, well, we'll set up a training program. But the training programs were small, kind of lousy, not oriented towards where the economy was going. It wasn't enough. And that's why you have this strange phenomenon of the far right and the far left both being united in their disdain for trade. Uh, and that's why those in the center who might like to see progress made need not to reject those people as being extremists, but listen to those people and try to solve their problems. I think we have to recognize that the displacements that take place come for a lot of different reasons. Most of the jobs that get outsourced don't get outsourced to another country. They get outsourced to the past. And I think that what we have to recognize is that the economy needs to be reinvented and we need to find the new jobs of tomorrow. And I would say that the $64,000 question for the United States and the $64,000 question for Japan and the $64,000 question for Europe and China is how do we create the new jobs of tomorrow? How do we create jobs in a hyperproductive society? Do we continue to work five days a week? If we work less, how do people make a sufficient amount of money? Uh, how do we deal with inequality that concentrates so much wealth among so few people that a lot of the people who have been marginalized have very little to turn to and to, to draw upon? What does the future of the new economy look like? Uh, you know, people say, well, there's going to be great new jobs and new areas. But then you look at biotech. It doesn't actually create that many new jobs. You look at some of the new tech companies. When Instagram went public, I think, for a billion dollars, it had 17 employees. You know, and a lot of these companies aren't creating jobs in the way that we did in the past. This is the great national work of every government is finding out, you know, where those new jobs are. Many of them are in small and medium sized businesses. Um, many of them are in fields that don't exist yet. Uh, if everybody starts to do 3D manufacturing in their basement, um, then there's going to be a need for a bunch of 3D manufacturing machine repairmen. And there's going to be, you know, I mean, there's, there's going to be other things that are going to come out of this. That, is, we ought to look at this and say, this is our moonshot. This is our challenge. We have to reinvent our economy. For, and by the way, it gets a little more complicated. We are going from a world in which typically the workforce was one or two generations deep to a world in which the workforce is going to be four or five generations deep, to a world in which people who work to be 60, 70, 80 years old will be common. And because they're not sort of toting that barge and lifting that bale, because they're able not to, you know, sort of strain themselves physically, but work in the, you know, information age kind of industries, there's no reason why they shouldn't work that long. And if, you know, a company like Toyota or some other company 
wants to take advantage of 50 years of experience, they can. They don't have to sort of push those people out to pasture. That should be seen as a boon. But if you go to Washington, you say, well, we have a lot of old people. They go, oh, well, how, how are we going to pay for all those old people? Um, but the reality is that all those old people are actually an economic bonanza of earning power, consuming power, creating power that we've never had before. And, 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 and we ought to seize upon that. And I think that's – you raise an interesting point is that we're educating or training people, whether it's children, whether it's people who have been displaced, for a future that we don't understand yet, particularly when it comes to artificial intelligence and, and hyper-integration with digitalization and all these other technological advancements. Um, when you look at trade, many of the people who were displaced were your, your traditional blue-collar worker. But when you look at AI, it's not just your blue-collar worker who can be displaced. It's also your white-collar worker. It's your accountants, your your lawyers, your radiologists. So that's going to create even more challenges for we, how we try to prepare for that. And for Toyota as a global company, how do you recommend that we prepare for this? Well, I would say several things. I think Toyota faces a big internal challenge. I've had the pleasure, the privilege of working with Toyota for a long time. When I started working with Toyota, when I first knew Toyota, I thought of Toyota as a manufacturing company, a hardware company. When I look at Toyota today and I see where it's going, where I see where the value added is in a vehicle, where I see that where we once were concerned about vehicle efficiency and we looked at fuels and, and drivetrains, when we now look at vehicle efficiency, we might look at connected cars and say, well, gee, if I can make a car that doesn't crash into another car, I can make it of a lighter material. If I make it of a lighter material, then that can actually be a more efficient vehicle. And the thing that's making vehicles more efficient, therefore, is the ability to talk to each other and not the type of fuel that they're using. Well, what does that say? That car is going to be full of computers. And so for my last question, many people from both sides, whether you're conservative or liberal or somewhere in between, think that this election is just shows that we've hit rock bottom. Um, where do you think it, we really are and where do you think we're going? The United States is richer than it's ever been. It's more powerful than it's ever been. It's more powerful relative to other developed countries in the world than it's ever been. It's still the leading destination for people who emigrate from around the world. It's still the leading destination for people who seek to go and get higher education. It's still the leading producer of patents in the world. It's still a leading innovator. This is the best, most prosperous, richest country in the world at the height of its power the United States is going through an unprecedented demographic change. In 2013, for the first time in U.S. history, we had a cadre of Americans under five-year-olds where minorities, African-Americans, Latinos, and Asians, were the majority. In 2020, that'll be true for everybody under 18. By 2043, that'll be true for everybody in the country. And you can look at that and say, well, this is causing traditional majorities to be very nervous. And it is. But by 2043, no country in the world will be more diverse, better connected to its Latin neighbors, better connected to Asia, better able to do global business. No country will, you know, we're the OECD country with the youngest population because we actually do accept immigrants better than others. You know, we have competitive advantages that nobody else has going ahead. And right now, I am extremely optimistic 
about the United States and where things are going. Well, that is a world I think many of us very much look forward to. And David, thank you so much for your time today and your brilliant insight. I know that my listeners greatly benefit from it, as have I. Always a pleasure. My pleasure, too. Thank you. Thanks. And thank you for listening to Toyota Talks Global. I'm Lila Aridia Foss, International Policy Director. 